Thank you for tuning in to today's audio message. Here at Temple Baptist Church, we are a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Well, good morning. It is uh, great to be here. It's always good to come back and uh, be with friends and uh, to be with family. We've lived in uh, the U.S. almost nine years now, but we are Canadians, and people often ask us, well, what's the difference between you Canadians and us Americans? And they want us to talk about health care and politics, and I just say, you like to blow things up. That's what you like to do, both metaphorically and physically. When it comes to the 4th of July, I mean, they go crazy over there. And uh, we don't even have to ever go to any kind of fireworks display for the 4th of July because every neighborhood, almost every house, puts on like a community display. It is like a war zone uh, around a house. They just love things that go boom. And so because of their love for Independence Day, they they ask us, they say, hey, Terry, do you have like a 4th of July in Canada? Do we have a 4th of July? No, we Canadians, we like to go from the 3rd right to the 5th, and we skip the 4th. No, of course we have a 4th of July. We just don't do what you do on the 4th. We do that on the 1st. And it got me, though, kind of interested in, in just this Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. And it's fascinating because it starts by talking about a relationship that the Creator has with the creation. That there are some inalienable rights that the Creator has given to the Creator. Uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit right, of happiness. Now, it's fascinating, if you look at the history of that, when Thomas Jefferson wrote his first draft, he did not say the pursuit of happiness. He said that our inalienable rights were life, liberty, and the pursuit of possessions, of stuff. That was our right. Which is fascinating, isn't it? Because often we attribute happiness with what? Our stuff. And most people I know, we are pursuers of happiness. We want happiness. We think that we should have happiness, and we look for happiness. And we're going to see in a moment, sometimes the more we try to find happiness, the more unhappy we are. And when it comes to happiness, we have to understand what we're talking about. What's the definition of happiness? And happiness is really that feeling that we feel when our happenings happen the way that we want them to happen. Is that not it? When things happen the way that we want them to happen and plan for them to happen, and they happen that way, we are happy. But when things don't quite happen the way that we want them to happen, we get what? Frustrated, angry, irritated, unhappy. And we all want happiness. Right? No one gets up in the morning and says, my mission is to make people miserable unless maybe a few junior hires that I know. But most of us, we want happiness. The Bible, though, as we probably saw last week, never speaks about being happy. The Bible never tells us to find our happiness when our happenings happen the way that we want them to happen. The Bible always speaks about joy. And joy is very different from happiness. 
Happiness happens when our happenings happen the way that we want them to happen. Joy is different. Joy is the feeling that we have, right? When something, ha- when something is acquired, when there is a fulfillment of a longing in our heart, that's joy. When we are near to someone that we love or have something that we love, when there is a fulfillment of a big longing, we feel joy. That's what joy is. Not when our happenings happen the way that we want them to happen or our circumstances are as they are, but joy occurs when our greatest longings are fulfilled. Right? You think about it. What are the most joyful places that you know? Right? The airport. Right, because people that you have not seen for a long time, right, when they come down the airport runway, right, there's this joy because the longing of seeing someone. You watch, um, like, America's Got Talent, right? Maybe you cry sometimes in America's Got Talent. When someone has a longing that the world recognizes their talent, when they have a longing to sing, when they just have a longing to be recognized, and one of the judges says, what, you're a great singer, Right, there's tears right of joy. Because this is what joy is. It is being in the presence of something that we love. It is a deep longing that is fulfilled. And the scriptures never promise us happiness, that our happenings will happen the way that we want them to happen. But Jesus says, I've come for joy. In fact, that was Jesus' great promise in John 15, verse 11. He says, I have told you this, right? Jesus here, he's at the upper room. He's about to go to the cross. He says, I've shared all this with you so that what my joy may be in you and what that your joy may be complete. I've said this because I want you to have joy. And there is a whole book in the Bible about joy that you started to look at last week. It's this book of Philippians. It's this letter that Paul wrote while he was in prison, about 105 verses or so. About 55 of the verses speak about joy. They speak about this feeling when a longing is fulfilled. And Paul here, he's going to write about how do you experience joy, particularly when your happenings don't happen the way that you want them to happen and you're not happy about it. And as you started last week and Dave kind of shared and got the, the, this letter kind of introduced and started on this theme of joy. And here in the next few verses, in verse 12 to 24, Paul here is going to talk particularly about three things that steal our joy away why we don't experience that joy, and what we can do to kind of turn our minds and our thoughts around to it. So if if you have your Bibles, if you want to look, it's on the screen behind me. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 12, the first thing that Paul says often steals our joy is our happenings, it's our circumstances. When our happenings don't happen the way that we want them to happen, how do you find joy? And this is what Paul was experiencing Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, he's kind of introduced them. He's writing to them from prison, remember. He is under house arrest in Rome. He's chained to a guard, and he says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me 
my circumstances, my happenings, has really served what? To advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I am what? In chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of the Lord more courageously and fearlessly. And here is Paul. He's saying that no matter what's your circumstances, no matter what your happenings, there is the possibility of joy. And Paul knows this because his circumstances were not great. Here was Paul. He grew up in a rather wealthy family. He was highly educated. He was learned under one of the best kind of Hebrew uh, teachers that there was. He was known as kind of a persecutor of God's people, of Christians. And then all of a sudden, he had a life-changing encounter with Jesus. And he realized what Jesus had done for him and that Jesus was his new identity, that Jesus was his new purpose, that Jesus gave him a a new mission, that, that Jesus changed how he saw himself. And Paul's happenings went in the toilet, really. Right, all of a sudden, he became public enemy number one. He was run out of Ephesus. He was run out of other cities. He was falsely accused. He was falsely arrested. He was finally arrested in Jerusalem, and he claimed, and as he was, he was a Roman citizen, so he, even though he was arrested, had a right to a Roman trial in Rome, and he wanted to get to Rome because his big dream and his big goal was to be able to share with Caesar, the leader there. He wanted Caesar to hear about Jesus. And so he is arrested falsely in Jerusalem under false pretenses. He wants a trial in Rome. He goes to Rome. He gets shipwrecked on the way, nearly loses his life, not great circumstances, lost at sea, shipwrecked on an island, finally rescued, able to get off there. And he's stuck in prison in Rome and he's stuck in the system. He's left there forgotten for two years. Any of you like the system? Maybe you feel like you're lost in the system. And this is Paul. And his happenings were not happening the way that he wanted them to happen. But he writes a letter about joy. In fact, a few verses on, just down in verse 18, he says, the important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Because of this, what I rejoice, and I'm going to continue to rejoice. Here's Paul saying, this has all happened to me, and I am going to rejoice. Now, how do you do that? No matter what your circumstances, how do you experience joy? And this is what Paul does. He magnifies God and minimizes his circumstances. See, we do the opposite, right? When our happenings don't happen the way that we want them to happen, what do we do? We think about it. We mull it over. We worry about it. We consider it. We think, why don't they want to do that? The word for circumstance, it's kind of a fascinating word. It comes from the Latin. It means circa, which is around, and stands is things that stand, standing around. And that's our circumstances, right? Looming large over us, standing around us, and they almost seem to mock us. 
right? And mock our life, mock our ability. You've got financial trouble, you've got work trouble, relational trouble, you've got vocational trouble, you've got all sorts of things in your life, health trouble, and they seem to stand around and mock you, and we can either magnify them or magnify God. And if you notice what the Psalms say over and over and over again, one of the phrases that comes up in the Psalms again and again is this, magnify the Lord, magnify the Lord. And what do you do when you magnify? You make something big. And what do we tend to do? We tend to make our circumstances big. And the bigger we make our circumstances, right, the smaller God gets. And the bigger we make our circumstances, and they're standing around, and they're looming around, and we think, this has happened to me, and this will never change. And how will this happen? It shrinks our God. And Paul says, I'm not going to magnify my circumstances. I'm going to magnify my God. And when he magnifies God... Right? He sees that some things are happening, that God is at work even when his happenings don't happen the way that he wants them to happen. And this is what he writes about. He says, even though I am in chains, he says, I'm doing what? I'm getting to share Jesus with the palace guard. And he is there under house arrest in Rome, chained to a guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week for over two years. Those guards change every four hours. That means six guards a day, 365 days for over two years. That's over 4,000 guard changes. And Paul shares with them. Now, the Praetorian guard, these particular guard that were there when Paul was under arrest, would work for only 12 years as a guard, and then they became members of the upper level of society, and they would hang around and become kind of the leaders and rulers of the city, and they would be around Caesar. In fact, we read in history that some of Nero's own family became Christians. His wife and his kids became Christians. Of course, Nero slaughtered them. He would do what many other Caesars did, kill off some of his family because they were believers. And here is Paul. You know what he does? If he magnifies his circumstances, he says, oh, nothing's ever going to get done. I'm not going to do anything. Nothing's ever going to happen. Everything mocks me. I can never change. I am a victim. Paul says, you know what? If I magnify God, I'm not going to waste my circumstances. I'm not going to waste them. And here he sees, right, people coming to Jesus because he shares with them around there, and they're going, and he doesn't get one shot. He never really gets to share the gospel with Caesar. He doesn't get one shot, but there are 4,000 opportunities for Caesar to hear from these palace Praetorian guard who become part of the elite. And Paul says, I'm not going to magnify my happenings. I'm going to magnify God and see what he's going to do. See, and when we don't have joy, see, when you say, I don't have joy, I've lost my joy, I can't find my joy, it probably is a sign, ding, 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 it's an alarm, Maybe my focus is on the wrong thing. And maybe i got to stop magnifying my situation and my happenings 
and magnify what God may be doing. And if I magnify what God's doing, he may not waste my circumstances. Second thing that sometimes steals our joy, right? Because circumstances steal our joy. Second thing that steals our joy are people, right? Difficult people steal our joy. And I bet right now you can think one person, I bet there's one person, maybe there's more, who's stealing their joy. Hopefully they're not sitting next to you. But we have people, right, who love to steal our joy. And sometimes we think Paul is above all that. But Paul is a human being just like us. And the next thing he writes is that there are difficult people who are trying to steal away his joy. In verse 15, it says, It is now true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in change. Anyone stirring up trouble for you? Are there people trying to steal your joy because they're stirring up trouble for you? But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. Here, Paul uses that word again. He had difficult circumstances, said, I'm going to rejoice. He said, now there's difficult people in my life. And who are these difficult people? They were people who were judging Paul's circumstances. Of course, we would never do that, right? We would never judge someone based upon their circumstances, but this is what was happening. Here was Paul. He's chained to a guard. He's in prison. He can't church plant anymore. He can't visit churches. He he has no freedom. So what were people saying? Well, it must be some sin that Paul had done. Paul must have messed up big time, right? This is what Job's friends did with Job, that guy in the Old Testament who was suffering. He must have messed up. Paul's not a very good prayer anymore because God's obviously not listening to his prayers because Paul's stuck in prison. Maybe God's done with Paul. Maybe God's fed up with Paul. And people were looking at his circumstances and were judging Paul. And Paul had a choice, right? I can either magnify my God, or I can magnify these critical people, and I can begin to worry about them, and I can murmur about them, and I can grumble and complain about them, because that's what happens when we magnify, and we make large, and we focus on difficult people in our life. We make them out to be the enemy. We start accusing them of things. We grumble and murmur and and complain about that, and Paul doesn't do that. He says, I'm not going to magnify the difficult people in my life He says, I'm going to magnify God. And I'm going to look at how great my God is. And instead of looking at the people, I'm going to look at who my God is and what he wants to do and what he's able to do in my life. And when Paul does that, he sees that the gospel continues to be shared, that God is continuing at work. And Paul says here, I refuse to waste 
and affliction in my life. I mean, this is what Paul is telling us. Here he is, he's in prison. And, and, and you may say, you may be here this morning, you may say, but Terry, Terry, you don't know my happenings. You don't know my circumstances. You don't know the people in my life. You don't know what God has brought in or has allowed or the things that are being there. And I don't know, but Paul does. He knows what it's like to be left nearly dead. He knows what it's like to be beaten. He knows what it's like to be imprisoned. He knows what it's like to have chains taken on. I don't know your circumstances. I know some things. I know what it's like to sit in a hospital room for four months straight. I know what it's like to stand uh, on the, the grave of your son. I know what it's like to experience grief after grief. I know what it's like to experience ongoing grief. I don't know your circumstances. But you can either maximize your circumstances and minimize God, or you can minimize your circumstances and look to him. And here is Paul. He says, I'm going to continue to look to God. And notice what he goes on to say. He says, I am excited that even in this crisis being preached, and even because of that, because I'm not playing the victim, I'm not grumbling, I'm not complaining, I'm not losing my life over this problem. He he says, others are continuing to share. But in verse 19, he goes on, he says, yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, What has happened to me will turn out what? For my deliverance. What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. And I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, right? Because what happens? These critical, difficult people want him to play the victim, feel the victim, be ashamed. Poor Paul, he's not done anything. But I will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. What is Paul saying? He's saying, if I focus and maximize all these difficult people in my life, and I focus on what they do and how terribly they've treated me and what they've said and and who I am, and I'm not like that. I can't be like that. Why are they doing that to me? I will eventually become just like them. Or I can maximize God and find my joy in him, and I will ultimately, he said, I will experience my deliverance I will be justified. He uses here, this is the term, he actually borrows a verse out of the book of Job. He borrows a verse where Job says the same thing. Job, remember, uh, uh, lost his family, lost his livelihood, lost his health, lost just about everything, and all Job's friends came around who were really no friends at all and said, you've messed up, you better change your life, you better uh, uh, start praying more, you better do something different because God's against you. And Job said, I'm just going to keep maximizing God and looking at who he is. And Job said, when I do that, I will be delivered. I will be shown right. See, what was happening? You see, when we have difficult people in our life, it's easy to let them define us. When we have difficult people in our life saying things, you've messed up, you're no good, it's easy for us to become defined by them and find our identity in them. And I know many of us have struggled with that. You had a parent growing up who said, you weren't very good. I didn't want you. You were a mistake, and you felt like that. You've let them define you. 
You've had a teacher in school who said, you're not that smart, you can't really do much, you'll never amount to anything, and you've let that define you. You've let one hurtful word that says, uh, you're you're a critical person, or you're an angry person, or uh, you're a difficult person, you've let that define you. You've let something in your life, a tragedy, a divorce, failing out of school, fired from a job, you've let that define you. And we let difficult people steal our joy because we become defined by what they say. And Job said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be defined by what they do that. I am defined by who God says I'm going to be, and I am going to be remembered by that. And Paul says the same thing. He says, I am not going to let these difficult people define me. And if they are sharing Jesus and they're talking about Jesus and they're preaching the gospel, even if it's difficult for me, even if they're saying things about me, what does it matter as long as Jesus is preached? And Paul says, I'm not going to be defined by that. I'm going to be defined by who God says I am. And if you read one of the other books, letters that he writes in prison, the letter to the church in Ephesus, and, and there in Ephesus, he talks a lot about who we are in Jesus. He says, God made me a masterpiece. I'm not junk. I'm a masterpiece. I'm created for good works. He writes to the church in Corinth, said, I am a new creation. The old is gone. I'm not who people thought I was or what people said I was. I am new in Christ. Jesus has made me new. He writes in the book of Ephesians that we are seated in the heavenlies. That I have a very different position. He says in the second chapter of, of Philippians here that, that we are not victims. We're not grumblers or complainers. We're not warriors. We are stars who shine brightly. So you can let people steal your joy. You can let them steal your joy because you can start to let other people define you or you can let Jesus define you who you are. And and Paul says, I'm going to do that. No matter what people in my life, no matter what people say, I'm going to be vindicated in the end. Because this is what Paul is saying. In the end, God's going to show for what I really am, for what my work is. God's going to vindicate me. If I magnify him, he will vindicate me. And how do you do that? How do you find your identity in him? It's prayer and God's people. It's what uh, Paul goes on to uh, say, um, yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. See, you cannot have joy without prayer. I think Pastor Dave said that last week. You cannot have joy without prayer. Why? Because joy is a longing fulfilled. And there's something in prayer, pouring out our longing, sharing our longing, sharing our desires with God, that joy comes when that longing, it is fulfilled. And he says, without prayer and you, 
your prayers. I need you with me. We need the body. We need one another. We need small groups. We need classes. We need others to remind us, not of what difficult people say we are, but who Jesus says we are. No matter what circumstances, we can have joy. No matter what people, we can have joy. Third thing, I'm not sure what to say. Paul goes on. He, he, he says, no matter what selfishness. It's one of the things that steals our joy is us trying to get joy. Right? We are trying desperately to order our circumstances, our happiness, to try to find joy. And when we don't have happiness, when we don't have joy, we will try to find something that will do that, and we will try to manufacture it, right? We think, right, oh, if I just graduate school, I'll have joy. And then you discover you got to work. Right? I had more disposable income when I was a student than I ever had working. Right? If I just have a child, if I just had a baby, I will have joy. That lasts till the first diaper explosion. Right? If I just get a promotion, if I could just get a promotion, get a different job, and then all of a sudden you realize right, that that's way more work, sometimes less money. Right, if I could just get a new car, right, I'll have, if I just get a new car, I'll have joy. And that lasts till about the first scratch or dent. And we often think, if I could just have something else, just something else, that will be joy. Paul says, it's not something else that will give me joy. It's not trying to manufacture it. It's Jesus he says in verse 20, I eagerly expected and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but I will have sufficient courage so that as always now Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. He says, for me to live, it's Jesus. It's his mission. It's his purpose. You see, where does joy come from? Joy is a longing fulfilled. You have to have a purpose that's fulfilled to experience joy. You know, a survey several years ago said 79% of people don't know what their purpose or mission is. Four out of five people don't feel they have a purpose. Four out of five people feel they don't have a, a, a mission in life. Four out of five people will never have joy because the longing of fulfilling the purpose will never be fulfilled. And here's Paul. He's saying, for me to live, it's not a new car. For me to live, it's not a new job. For me to live, it's not just being retired. For me to live, as I have a purpose, it's Jesus. And, and it doesn't mean that you have to like sell everything and go to a monastery. It doesn't mean that you have to spend 24-7 in church. It just means that overarching purpose, whatever your other purposes are, that that purpose is living on mission, that we are part of an eternal story, Right? So many of us, we live life as if we just got uh, a few years left here. Jesus encouraged us to live life because we've got eternity. What we experience now will take into the next life. We are part of a grand, great, eternal story. There's a great purpose. And Paul says here, for me to live is Christ. And much of the rest of the book of Philippians speaks about what that is. What is to live in Christ? It means that our focus is on Christ. Our identity is in Christ. 
our purpose and mission. It is in Christ. And a lot of times people say, well, that doesn't sound very joyful to me, right? Because we have this picture, right, of, of, of God as kind of a very joyless person. Right, and that we're sitting kind of on with pews, that, that God doesn't want us to have any fun, that God's not there for us. The reality is he is a God of great, exceeding joy. In fact, the book of Job said when God created the heavens, when he put everything in there together, he says while he was creating the morning stars, the angels sang together, and the angels, they shouted for joy. And it's a continuous shout. It's like, remember when you were a parent and you do something for your little kid and, and it was kind of goofy, but they liked it, and they say, do it again, Dad. And you do it again, and they say, do it again, Dad, and you do it again, and they say, do it again, Dad, and you like, you're tired of it, but they just love it. That's the picture that God's creating, and the angels are like, this is amazing. Do it again with great joy. The book of Psalms gives God a nickname, al Samanthani in Hebrew. It says, God of exceeding joy. Like when Jesus was born, you know what God did? He filled the sky with, with lights. He put on a, a light show bigger than any 4th of July celebration. He brought in choirs of angels to sing. There was joy. Jesus had to be one of the most joyful people. He was always invited over for dinner. People loved to have him. In fact, if you read the book of Mark, it basically is he's either coming from a meal, going to a meal, or having a meal. Or sorry, that's Gospel of Luke. Uh, the whole book is about the meals that Jesus had. Now let me tell you, do you invite joyless, boring, critical people to your house for dinner? You don't do that. You invite people of joy. Jesus shared stories about joy. He, he said, when, he said, when my father has a lost child come home, he rejoices. When a shepherd finds a sheep, he rejoices. When a woman finds a lost coin, some change lost in the sofa and realizes, I've got something, she rejoices. When the son comes home, the father rejoices. He rejoices. Jesus said, I've come that you might have joy. Not joy in something else. but You might have joy in me. To live is Christ. You see, that's where the source of joy, it comes from. We want joy in something else. Joy is a longing fulfilled. It's the feeling we have when we are in the presence of someone that we love. And Paul says, I can have that presence wherever I am, whether I'm in prison or, or somewhere else, I am there. In fact, he, he says, to live is Christ. My whole mission in life. What's your mission? See, if you don't have Joy, it could be that you are living a less mission, substandard mission. And then notice what he goes on to say, his close. He says, if I'm going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far but it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow. He says, uh, to live is Christ, to die, he says, is gain. 
I want to be here, but I want to be with Christ. I love to be here because living it is Jesus, but death it's a gain. In fact, the, the Greek, they had about 25 different words for, for gain. And, and really, the, the word that Paul uses here, it's, it's like winning the lottery. It says living here is good. It's Christ. But death is gain. Why? Because my focus has been on him. My identity has been on him. Uh, my mission has been on him. And when that's it here, then death is a gain. You see, if your mission is to be popular, death is a tragedy, folks. Because you're lost and forgotten. If your mission is to be wealthy, death is terrible, horrifying. Because you can't take it with you. If your mission is to advance and advance and advance and advance. Death is a tragedy. The only time death is a win, it's a gain, and we all experience it. The only time is if Christ is your life and you don't have joy, maybe something else. Maybe there's a submission, a shadow mission that's taking that joy away. The writer of Hebrews says something fascinating about joy. He's talking about Jesus going to the cross, and he says uh, this um, in Hebrews. He says, for the joy set before him he endured the cross. Now, what possible, possible joy? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Now, think about Jesus uh, suffered, he died, he was beaten, he nearly lost his life, he sweat blood, he hung on a cross for six hours for joy. But for the joy set before him, he endured the circumstances. He endured the difficult people. Why? It was the mission. What possible joy. The only joy that I can think of that would cause Jesus to hang on the cross was the mission of seeing lost children come home. Right, Steven Spielberg, one of the great um, movie directors and producers, I, I mean, so many of his movies, right? Why do we love his movies? It's the same theme. It's lost children coming home. E.T., right? This little lost extraterrestrial gets to go home. Everybody cries. Saving Private Ryan, they find a soldier, finally gets home to his mom. Everybody cries. Amistad, slaves, finding home. Everybody cries. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because God knew that you and I would wander away, be far away, and he just wants us home. He just wants us home. In a moment, we're just going to share communion. It's a reminder to us, right, of what Jesus did. Every time you hold that cup, every time you have that wafer, it's a reminder of the joy of lost children coming home to their heavenly Father that allowed Jesus to hang there on the cross for you and I. 
in that same joy as ours in living a life that encourages other lost children to come home. You don't have joy because of difficult circumstances change your focus. You don't have joy because of difficult people. You don't have joy because of them. Find your identity not in what they say, but in Christ. You don't have joy because nothing you've tried to find joy seems to work. To live, it's Christ. Change your mission. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you just for Paul's example that life wasn't great for him. He's not writing from a palace or a beach or a vacation about just having joy. He's living it in the moment. And Father, I just pray for all of us that no matter what challenging circumstances, no matter what people, no matter what we try to do to find joy, that we would find it in you, that we would magnify you, become who you say you are, and live on mission for you. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you gave your life 2,000 years ago so that our joy might be full. In Jesus' name, amen.